Hey, welcome to Integrated Community Paramedicine Podcast. And today we're talking with a couple of guys up in Wisconsin, Chris Muldrum and uh, Corey Strawbar. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that even close to correctly. And these guys have been at this for a couple of years now and have built a very uh, clinically focused program, which is a little different from some of the ones we've talked to recently. But uh, I'll let you hear from them about what they're doing. So Chris, Corey, welcome. Thanks for coming on. Thanks Thanks for for having us. So, Chris, it sounds like you've been there for uh, for a while now, about four years. We were just talking, and um, you kind of built this from nothing, from scratch. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got there, and how this all got started? Let's take this back to the very beginning. I was working. I was a nine one one critical care paramedic, doing you know nine one one calls, splitting between you know some of the high acuity critical care ground transports that we have in the area. And that's where the selection kind of came from is, is there was an opportunity to get involved. Um, there were several of us that had to submit a letter of interest and intent to our management at the time. And this was originally supposed to be a collaboration between our local 911 service and our hospital here in, in La Crosse. Now our local 911 service is also an affiliate of the health system. So that's kind of where the origin of this program started back in, you know, this was 2015 when things were starting to be discussed in positions and in mission. And that's, that's kind of where the origin came from. Sure. So what was the pain point? Like what was the question that they were trying to figure out how to solve? In reference to why they wanted to create the program. Yeah. Like why start an MIH program? Like usually these things come about because somebody thinks that um, whatever the, the medics are doing might be a solution to some kind of problem. Yeah, I think that there was, our local health system is, is huge community advocates and every health system has areas they want to improve in and do better for their patients. And that's where our initial heart failure program came into play, improving patient outcomes. Okay, so the heart failure piece was the first part of it. Yes, that was launch. Launch point was heart failure. And then when we were talking a little while ago, uh, you were describing you've kind of grown into really working in several areas, you know, heart failure being uh, where you started and that, that core focus, but a couple other areas of interest. So we also have about eight weeks ago, we started a sepsis program. So we're now doing post-discharge sepsis follow-ups uh, to help reduce you know, reinfections and readmissions and to help increase um, patient outcomes in the direction we want them to go. Uh, We also have uh, recently started working with pulmonology patients through our pulmonary clinic. And same thing there, kind of looking at their readmission risk profiles and and trying to reduce those or uh, any other specific metrics or goals that you're really being held accountable for or, you know, working towards? So the data, data collection for the pulmonary program is really kind of just getting started early is in the infancy yet. Goals for that was really that was pushed forward kind of via COVID was, A, we needed to always to prepare for a surge in our area. So we needed hopefully keep some of these fragile pulmonary patients at home and, and not expose them. And then also, you know, you're, you're part of the ability to hopefully free bets that some of these COVID patients may need. 
and we had the ability to go out see these people in their home and potentially treat in place if needed. Sure, that's actually a story that we've been hearing quite a bit all over the place is health systems recognizing that their MIH programs, their community paramedics are already seeing these incredibly vulnerable patients who are the ones who could least afford to get sick or to be hospitalized for, for any reason. You know, these are the folks that we absolutely want to protect from exposure in any way, shape or form, including nosocomial exposure. Yes. So it, it's pretty exciting when you realize that that level of trust has been built and that your health system recognizes that you are their good connection to those folks. Yeah, it was, it was great. And, you know, once, you know, the needs are recognized and the abilities are recognized and the partnerships within, you know, the hospital and the CPs will just continue to grow and flourish. Oh, for sure. So again, it sounds like the program is pretty clinically focused, uh, a lot of post-acute care. So talk a little about, you know, how are you, I know Corey came on about a year ago. Uh, it sounds like you're looking to hire and add some people to your team. How does that work? You know, how are we taking a medic off the street who comes off of a 911 truck and get them ready to do the job? You know, and as we were talking, it sounds like you kind of had to trial and error that process yourself, but what's that going to look like in the future as your program grows? If it does grow, if you, you bring some new people on board, you know, what lessons learned are going to guide that in the future? Lessons learned. Uh, so I went through the Hennepin Tech program prior to um, taking on the position full-time. Also, I had a background in critical care in a degree. So I think that a combination of all of those is what we're going to want in the future is I want my CPs to have a degree of some kind. I want my CPs to be, you know, recognized through a regionally, you know, Hennepin is kind of the gold standard at the moment. So that's where we'll continue to shoot for, for our community paramedic training. And then also require critical care background, critical care certification. And, and I think some of that is exposure to the system, starting to understand, you know, your lab values, what, what do they mean? X-ray is kind of helping pull a little bit of the hospital stuff across that we don't necessarily get exposed to when you're a 911 medic. Sure. So the educational foundation sounds like it's pretty key to the, the model that you're building there. I think that the education is the future of, of community paramedicine. Absolutely. Well, I think it's the future of paramedicine, but... Yes, I'll, I'll back that up 100%. Absolutely. I've been, I've been pretty lucky. I look at my team and I realize uh, virtually all of them have degrees. Um, I have a couple who are not yet completed with their degrees, but are in school. And at this point, it's more chasing paper than anything else. The majority of my team uh, is either in grad school or has a graduate degree. And it's apparent. It's apparent when we sit down and we get together and we're able to brainstorm. You know, these days it's obviously been over Zoom quite a bit more than it's been in person. But just that ability to think about these problems intellectually and academically. And then when we ask a question that, you know, the, nobody in the room has a good answer for just yet, the way the team approaches solving that problem or answering that question because of their, you know, the academic background that all of them have, because of the fact that they understand that gut instinct isn't always right and that we really want to answer things from a position of knowledge or acknowledge where we don't know things it it's just it's fun to watch it's fun to watch people say okay cool i'll take i'll do the lit review that, that's amazing like let's start there hey, we were chatting about research you folks have a study here which you know i think people would love to hear some more of or more about but 
you know, being able to engage academically with the literature that does exist and to identify where the gaps are and say, okay, well, how, do, how about we tackle that? So your study, it sounds like it was really designed to validate the work you were doing early on, especially around heart failure. But yeah, can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, so there was a re- we did a research paper here within our health system. As, as anybody out there probably knows, quantifying CP data can be very difficult. The purpose of the, the research was to really try to quantify the impact on not only readmission work, but overall patient outcomes, health literacy type of things. And that was the basis off of the first four years of my heart failure work within the system here. Sure. So it sounds like it was uh, a retrospective look and you folks had the advantage of good uh, data collection systems, you know, fully integrated into the hospital's EHR. So you had somewhere to look back at. Yes. Everything that we do here as CPs is becomes part of the patient medical record as soon as we hit save. So we're, we're truly right in the mix and everybody who takes part in that patient care can see what, what we've noted and what we've done and what then just helps the communication across the whole health system. You know, just that capturing good data capturing good, consistent data that's available to everybody on the care team, all the participating clinicians, and then being able to, you know, share it and to look at it, you know, more, more objectively from that, that strategic or that 30,000 foot view is probably the best advice you could give any program out there. You know, if you, if you have questions about what you're doing and how you're charting and capturing things, then uh, the answer should be integrated. You know, that's really the operative word, right? We need to be integrated into the bigger health system. And it sounds like you folks have done a, a pretty great job of making sure that the work you're doing lives within the broader health system and not just in a silo someplace like most pre-hospital care records tend to be. I think we we're quite fortunate with the way the program fell together. So it's, was That actually was a hospital health system type project versus being 911 service where I don't think the integration would have been as good. I think it could be. I think it would have just been a real, a lot more work and taken a lot longer to build the relationships and to uh, integrate into the EMR and learn the ins and the outs and have all the connections that there are in the hospital for resources. And that's yeah. So asking you, you know, how do we do that? Because again, I know, I know the systems that I've come from, the two programs I've been fortunate enough to be part of, again, large health system based, you folks are a hospital based system. Obviously there are partnerships with our pre-hospital, you know, and public safety partners throughout the community. But at the end of the day, I, I work for a major health system. You work for a large health system. How do we take the lessons that we are learning about all of this? And, you know, what do we need to tell our colleagues who are trying to do this within, you know, municipal and small local and volunteer agencies that are entirely public safety or entirely EMS focused? How do, how do they do what we're doing at the community level? I think the key word there is stakeholders, right? It's a word that keeps coming around quite often. So you have to really figure out from before day one, who are your, who are going to be your stakeholders in your program? Is it going to be your health system? Is it going to be a private clinic? Is it going to be, who is it going to be? I think that's where it has to start. It's, it's building those partnerships and relationships. You talked a lot about when we were chatting earlier, trying to figure out all the resources that are available, what's out there in the community and picking the brains of all the different folks you were shadowing and starting to work with within your health system. Are you folks using any tools or any platforms to help you 
uh, track all those different resources and build that repository or that, I, I'm going to say database, but that database of all that knowledge? Up to now, it's it's really been kind of learn as you go. Now there's large project, a regional project within the health system that will centralize all these different resources. So we'll have, um, it'll be available within our operating system. Yeah, so the Office of Population Health, of which we're under. The code name is Big Bertha. Big Bertha, Aunt Bertha. Big Bertha, something, uh, something like, like that. that. Um, but yeah, Aunt that's kind of where I was getting is, have you looked at Aunt Bertha or Parity uh, Tracker or some of the other um, tools that are out there? And that's that's coming for our entire health system, and which will ease our workload and trying to figure out resources and find them. For right now, it's just a list of as we come across resource, we take names, numbers, note it down. Um, we have a, a resource binder that we keep here at our <laughs> office and are just building upon that for the time being. <laughs> yep, it's the same struggle that I think a lot of folks are going through. And I remember we looked at Aunt Bertha uh, a number of years ago and it wasn't quite there yet. It wasn't quite robust enough. And then uh, we adopted it both for our, our MIH program as well as the entire health system. Uh, recently, it's now actually built into our EHR. Uh, we, are, we are using Epic as well. And we've just heard that the state has adopted it for all medical assistance uh, providers. So uh, it, it's a great tool. It's not the only one that's out there. I don't work for Aunt Bertha, but they, they've done a great job. Um, we found some challenges and some limitations with it as well. Number one is they very much focus on resources that deliver free or reduced cost uh, products and services. So they don't or they won't index or list things that don't fall into that category. And one of the ones that uh, came up pretty early on was pulse and, you know, end of life uh, sustaining treatment type orders. Now there's phenomenal uh, web-based resources that are out there at the state level that basically will walk you through completing one and, and give you some, you know, advice around it. And we noted that a lot of our patients needed those type of things. They didn't know where to turn. So these are great resources that we refer people to on a regular basis uh, but they can't be indexed on Aunt Bertha because it is not a free or reduced cost service. It's really just a resource that can help them navigate some, certain processes. So still working to come up with the perfect, but yeah, Aunt Bertha is a great place to start for sure. When being part of, you know, a hospital system, then there's always a multitude of social workers who have navigated these resources for years. You have your care coordinators who are also navigated these resources for years. So you have other outlets where you could get information from instead of trying to, you know, find everything on your own. For sure. You know, we, we certainly relied very heavily on social workers and case managers uh, for resources early on and still do. I mean, there's, there's relationships there that we'll never not need, but I have certainly found that over time, we've also developed an understanding of a lot of things that are just separate from the hospital that have helped us quite a bit. So yeah, no, I, it sounds like you guys are on a, a great track in terms of your data and informatics work. That was the goal. A lot of what our Epic build was, was to try to figure out the best way of automating our data gathering. Some of that stuff is still kind of having the kinks worked out in, in the infancy of how do we track this stuff? What's the best way of doing it? And then also trying to figure out what exactly do you want to track? And then I think the metrics are always evolving too, to a certain degree. Sure. I mean, that's always the the challenge, right? You know, the data folks just say, well, just capture everything and people doing the work go, do you have any idea how much time that takes? Yes. Yeah. And that's where, you know, early on the heart failure, the data was very difficult to capture. 
So try it moving forward to make some rates to our epic documentation to where we could track metrics, you know, stuff as simple as did you give a medication? Did you refer someone to community resources? Any Anything that I thought would be a value, I tried to automate in our EPIC documentation. And I honestly haven't done a pull of that data yet to see how well it works. So I can keep you posted when that day comes. Sounds good. I mean, we're definitely interested in seeing more literature out there. And, and that's really a, a message to every single program. Track your data, find a partner to help you do the analytic work. And we need to hear the work that everybody's doing. You know, we need to see more publications that are out there. And that's good and bad. That's, you know, if you realize that, hey, this model we were working on ended up not being good. Um, that's as important, if not more important than just the, you know, the bright, shiny, hey, we did a great job and we saved lots of money. And you know, we made everybody better stories. Yeah, the, the failures are just as important as the successes. So talking about education, um, have either of you sat for the CPC exam? No, not yet. <laughs> I've been really, really become a proponent of it. Um, I was one of the first pilots, uh, folks to take it with the first pilot group. And, you know, it wasn't quite where it needed to be the first round. The new exam is out there. Um, we were pretty lucky to have uh, some of the folks that work for me involved in the uh, the second version, and my my old boss was involved in the first version. It's getting better. I, I really do think it's getting better. But I've, I'm hearing more and more often how important that third party uh, credentialing, not so much as an entry level requirement, but think about it more like the nursing um, specialty credentials, you know, the CEN and the CFRN and those sort of things. Uh, how important it is that payers and other regulatory bodies see that, you know, we're all pursuing not only advanced education, but um, that type of third-party credentialing. So I like it. I tell you that if, if you've been through the Hennepin program and you guys are doing the work that you're doing and living within the population health space that you are, um, you're, you're in a great place to sit there and, and be successful with that. I do like the idea of it. And honestly, with the program where it is and the amount of work that's gone into it, it's really just been a matter of not really having the time to get details and to, to really look at sitting for that test. But I would certainly love to have the credentials and love to see everybody that would be part of our program or any other program to be afforded that opportunity. For sure. Yeah, definitely a place to take it. And especially if you've already um, focused on investing in the education through a, a large standardized program. Again, the Hennepin program is you know, the one that we all heard about when we got started. And it's really um, a standard in the, this profession or in this uh, specialty. So yeah, taking it, taking it the next step isn't gonna hurt anybody. Um, I like the idea of it a lot. I think the implementation has come a long way and will continue to improve the more of us you know, take it and stay engaged in that process. Uh, what about CAMPS? What have you heard about the CAMPS standard? Uh, not familiar. Are they, I didn't even know they were involved in any of the community paramedicine work. Sure. So that's an ongoing one. And really, this is just a, more of a point to get the message out there that a draft standard has been put together. Um, CAMPS is really looking at a lot of specialty program accreditation. Um, the draft standard is public. It's available on their website for review and for comment. And there's a committee that is working through the draft and really trying to make sure that it represents something that it needs to. Um, but again, for programs like yours, where you guys have got some years of experience, you've been at this for a little while, um, I think it's vital that 
you take a look at those standards, um, you comment on those standards and help improve them. So before they get rolled out, and we won't really have a timeline to say that they're going to be rolled out, you know, this week or next month or what have you, but getting more public comment from people who are actually in this field doing this work is vital. So the camp standard draft standards are out there for MIH. Please take a look at them. Uh, please share them around and get other people because they don't just want to hear from us. They want to hear from the people that we work with and the partners that we have. You know, they want to hear from administrators. They want to hear from pharmacists. They want to hear from payers. Uh, they want to hear from care coordination folks, case managers, social workers, to make sure that when a standard is put forward for a quality program, it really does represent what it needs to. Definitely have to take a look. So I hear you guys are hiring. We are. What are you looking for? Who is your ideal candidate? Ideal candidate. I think the ideal CP candidate, in my mind, really revolves around personality in clinical understanding slash proficiency. They really need to be both an individual and a team worker, because a lot of the work that we do is out in the field by ourselves. Sometimes we don't even have access depending on how far or how remote we get. But within the health system, we're working as a team with the rest of the system, just trying to make it uh, successful for our patients. You know, as, as paramedics, a 911 paramedic, I mean, we're, most of us are really pretty alpha personalities. And I think that being a CP, you know, you have to step that alpha personality back a little bit, not too much, but just so you're not a bull in a china shop. It certainly doesn't take much to ruin a relationship, just one incident. And, you know, a relationship could really be irreparable after that. So I think you just have to really look at a personality. As long as somebody is passionate and willing to learn, I, I think, you know, what you're doing as a CP not, isn't necessarily that far off of what you do as a paramedic. It's just a different environment, um, some tweaks, a little more technical, um, but certainly things that you can always, if somebody's willing to learn, you can teach. I'd say it's the next step in uh, patient assessment. And what we learn in paramedic schools across the board are, you know, generalized, but with each patient in the CP program, it's very different, unique. Utilize motivational interviewing to get answers and understand um, a patient be successful is huge. Absolutely. So you just touched on one of my favorite topics in, in MIH, motivational interviewing. So where are you learning MI? How are you getting trained in MI? And what advice would you give to other medics entering the profession about how to develop their own skills at motivational interviewing? So I got a brief uh, touch of it through Hennepin. Um, we covered it a little bit and uh, there's tons of programs out there that offer motivational interviewing. We were fortunate enough to talk within our healthcare system, ask about it, and there's actually a program here and they work to put a, a web or an online version of it here. It actually starts next Wednesday. So it'll be over the next four months and it's for anyone within our healthcare system, which I think is important. It shouldn't be just for nurses, paramedics, doctors. It's being utilized across the board for everyone. And this is through one of the local state universities. Yeah. So one of my questions would be, are they really teaching MI broadly? Um, are you either you guys familiar with where it came from and kind of how MI was developed? Not really. No. 
So that's that's been one of those challenges, I think, in translating it to the community paramedic world is MI was intended as a therapeutic intervention. It's actually a, a therapy technique, you know, similar to like CBI and some of the other therapy methodologies, you know, designed to elicit change talk to help people make changes in their behaviors. And I don't find us using it that way. We're not doing therapy. Uh, we're using it really more as an assessment methodology. So I'm always curious to see how people are learning MI and how they're learning to apply the elements of motivational interviewing that we think is important uh, to our practice. And when you're learning it from folks that are thinking about it more as a therapeutic intervention, it's, we kind of have to figure out where those lines need to be drawn so that we're not drifting into that realm. Absolutely. No, really, really, really good stuff. MI is, you know, we kind of talked a little bit about the things that are starting to um, free themselves from the background noise. And when we look at programs around the country that are demonstrably successful, there are some common elements that are starting to rise above the background. And a focus on motivational interviewing as an assessment methodology is absolutely one of those, I'd have to say. Like the more programs you see that have the data, that have a good focus, that are doing good work and can prove it, the more likely you are to hear that MI is a, a big part of the work they're doing. Now, all right. So give me a good patient story. Because everybody's got a good story and that's, uh, it's usually something that when you share it back at the hospital or, you know, back with a bunch of other people who are not paramedics, they just sit there and shake their head and go, I don't know how you folks do what you do. So give me a good community paramedic patient story. Do you want a funny one or a legit patient care story? <laughs> <laughs> do they have to be different? Um, no, but no, they don't. I'll let, I'll let Corey go first. All right. Well, I had a guy I was seeing for a while. Um, he was very difficult to get a hold of, but eventually got a hold of him, was seeing him for a while. Uh, one day I came up to his place and knocked on his door, saw his vehicle was outside and his uh, porch light was on at like 11 o'clock in the morning, which was a little weird. Knocking, all the blinds are closed and I hear chains rattling. Didn't know what was going on. And next thing I know, I see a gloved hand come behind a curtain and there he is, he uh, peeks his eye out and he's like, oh crap, closes the blind. I hear more chains and uh, some laughing. Well, eventually he opens the door and he's like, hey, can you come back in like an hour? I'm like, no, I've got other patients. Long story short, he opens the door all the way. He's wrapped in a towel. There's a female running around in the background giggling. And he's like, oh man, it's sexy time. So we left uh, with that and scheduled another visit another day. Yep. You know, there are definitely things that we need to let the patients prioritize. <laughs> well, at that point, I knew that his uh, heart health was doing pretty good. It's a stress test. That it is. So on a, on a more serious note, I think one of, the, one of the early on successes with our heart failure program here, um, I kind of use it as a case review when I'm speaking to others about what can be done in so we, there were, was a, I think she's really a key patient to the success of the program, but there was a heart failure patient, uh, mid sixties, started to see her in November. She had about six admissions prior in that year. You know, she didn't want to go to a nursing home. It wasn't really safe to send home on her own. And uh, so they were kind of stuck. So I kind of approached the, the attending and the team of residents and, and 
proposed what the program was about and what could be done. So we put a plan together that way. She got to discharge home as she wished with home health. So I worked closely with home health. What would happen is I would be able to go into the home, had orders to do point of care labs. We were checking creatinine and potassium every day on this heart failure patient, setting up all of her pill boxes with her in the morning. And I would talk with cardiology and our nephrologists, and we were adjusting her potassium almost every day. And that was the other side of community paramedicine is finally got to figure out what was, why we were chasing her potassium. So anyway, long story short, working, I would do labs. I would leave messages for home health. I was diuresing the patient. Uh, home health isn't able to do that through a peripheral IV in our state. So I was diuresing her every other day. Home health was in there in between, pulling labs and, and helping to adjust potassium level, you know, oral potassium on those days. So the, the success of that was is that she didn't readmit after that. She lived out her days, which was, you know, six months or a year at home where she wanted to be before she passed away. And uh, I think that just showcases what can be done what can be done safely, and how you can also partner with other entities in your region and be successful and not have a turf war over who whose patient is it and how things are going to work. No, that's really key, isn't it? All the partnerships and the folks that we're working with. Good stuff. Um, I think the uh, BDSM stress test is probably a little more entertaining, but... <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> you know, we got to build partnerships where we can and document it all well, do good things for patients, fill those gaps in care that are driving a lot of that excess utilization. Anyway, sounds like a couple of positions open there. So I imagine people can find that on uh, on the website for the hospital system. Yeah, guttersonhealth.org. Well, thanks for hopping on today, guys, and uh, kind of talking about your program, the stuff that you're doing. Not a problem. Thanks. For Appreciate us. your time. Excellent. I'm part again to spread the message. What it's all about. You know, there's lots of folks doing great work and we want to hear about it. That's it, folks. Thanks. That's Integrated, the Community Paramedicine Podcast.